Welcome to Care Captains, the podcast where Norbert Farkas has candid conversations with visionary healthcare leaders. Explore the projects, hurdles, and triumphs in disease prevention, diagnosis, and cure. Join us for a masterclass in healthcare innovation for well-being. Today, we are joined by an outstanding guest, James Creedon. James did his PhD in molecular toxicology and transitioned to a career in medicine driven by passion for personalizing patient therapies. He shares his experiences working in the pharma and diagnostics industries. His time in the US and later in Switzerland not only shaped his professional life, but also his personal development, especially during his transformative time in China. James will also delve into his role in the pioneering field of comprehensive genomic profiling, a game changer in cancer diagnostics and treatment. But his journey didn't stop here. During the COVID pandemic, James took a bold step into entrepreneurship. He started his advisory practice, his own startup, CGC Genomics Consults, and his newsletter project, helping professionals to find more meaning in their careers. Join us as we uncover James Creedon's unique perspective on cancer genomics, doing business in various parts of the globe, and exploring the challenges of entrepreneurship. Today, I'm delighted to have James Creedon on the show. Welcome, James. Thanks, Norbert. Pleasure to be here. Thank you very much for joining. James, uh, when we were discussing this interview, I recalled your profile and three things came to my mind. Once you worked in China, medical affairs, and the third one is genomic profiling. Would you mind uh, telling us what's your career story, please? Sure. Thanks for the opportunity. I grew up in the U.S. and uh, after university, pursued a Ph.D. in molecular toxicology. And after a couple of years of doing that, I I learned that research is really hard, and I have a great deal of admiration for people who do it for a living. But it was probably not for me. So I had the opportunity to switch my career path and go to medical school which was fantastic. That was more pursuing my fascination with science. And along the way, I became particularly passionate about the idea that some patients respond very differently to drugs, despite what we knew about pharmacological pathways and how drugs functioned. The fact that different populations of patients do better or worse on certain drugs was always very interesting for me. And for me, that became a lot of the art of medicine, really personalizing therapies for a particular patient. Even if they have the same disease, patients often respond differently. Uh, so I studied medicine and did my internship here and was uh, slated to go on to a residency at Columbia to do radiology. Uh, and I love taking care of patients, but the entire time I was imagining that I would go to industry because I dreamed of having a bigger impact on more people around the world. And as I started talking to some of my medical school classmates and my residency classmates, I was really surprised to learn how many of them were also thinking about a career outside of clinical practice. But in the U.S., they were trapped due to the insane amount of debt that they had to take on to finish their medical school training. And it still makes me wonder how many physicians out there practicing medicine, despite not really being passionate about patient care, but are actually trapped there by their financial situation. How did you start your career in the industry? I left my radiology residency at Columbia to go to Roche in the U.S., where I worked for a couple of years on various 
business perspectives for more targeted medicines and volunteered at a local clinic for people without insurance, which I found uh, really very rewarding, much more rewarding than working within the rest of the professional medical system. And then I had an opportunity to come to Basel. I ended up working on a project with a colleague based here in Switzerland who told me they had a position open and kind of recruited me for it. And it was a perfect time also for my wife. She was looking to change jobs. She had been with the March of Dimes for about three years. We came to Basel with the intent of staying here for two or three years, see how we liked it, and then potentially move on somewhere else. And we've been here for more or less 20 years, with the exception of the time we spent in China. I worked during that time here in Basel for Roche Pharma uh, on the business strategy side in the health economics and strategic pricing group which they certainly didn't teach in medical school. And it was a fantastic time for me. Really great colleagues who helped me along the way and taught me a lot about health economics and pricing and market access strategy. I had a chance to work on, at the time, some of Roche's newer crop of more targeted therapies. Maybe most importantly, my European colleagues helped me to break my habit of being a workaholic. So I came over as a, as a typical American, working too much, I would eat lunch at my desk, and uh, after a few weeks, they staged an intervention and told me that this was absolutely unacceptable behavior here in Europe, and that I was to join them on a regular basis for the coffee at nine o'clock and discuss what's going on in our lives, and then have a proper lunch of at least 90 minutes, including a walk afterwards, which was honestly a real gift. It was very difficult as an American to get away from that workaholic reflex, but was a fantastic gift to get to know my colleagues a little bit more and ended up turning out to be real help to my work. If I'm not mistaken, after pharma, you moved over to diagnostics, didn't you? So after a couple of years of working in pharma, I had the opportunity to move to the diagnostic side of the business where I worked in marketing for a couple of years and then was asked to become the chief medical officer of the largest part of the diagnostics business, Rose Professional Diagnostics, where I was their chief medical officer for about five years. Also an amazing time for me, great business challenges, also a tremendous education. But after five years, it was time to do something different. When we got connected, you were already stationed in China. How did you get there? After a couple of years of looking, a perfect opportunity came up for us to go back to pharma, but in China. And so I relocated my family to Shanghai. I had the opportunity to take a position as the medical director for China on the Roche Pharma side, responsible for the Roche Genetech Oncology portfolio. That was by far the hardest job I've ever had, managing about 80 local Chinese colleagues, fantastic people trying to learn Mandarin also on top of that and support my family with the relocation efforts. It turned out to be a fantastic experience for all of us. We saw so much more of the world than we ever dreamed of being able to see. During my time in China, Roche acquired a genomic profiling company called Foundation Medicine. And this turned into the most fun job that I've ever had, where I was asked to lead the regional launch in 12 countries of the Foundation Medicine Services for Roche there in the Asia-Pacific region. And this was another fantastic experience. I literally sat down with my commercial colleague in a blank sheet of paper, and we designed how to put together what's essentially a high-touch service business. 
within this pharma organization with ties to a larger diagnostics organization as part of Roche, of course. And this was amazing, hiring folks to set up, again, this high-touch service to be able to support oncologists to adopt this relatively new technology at the time, which is broad panel comprehensive genomic profiling, so the full sequencing of hundreds of genes in a tumor specimen to be able to identify markers that predict response to certain drugs. And at that time, the industry was was really only in its adolescence. There were not a lot of targeted therapies that were approved at the time. And a lot of this extensive complex testing was seen to be extraneous. So more testing than was necessary. A lot of the results didn't necessarily yield clinically relevant results, but when they did, they were often unexpected results or results that wouldn't have been detected anywhere else. So it was really a fantastic gift to a lot of patients to be able to identify driver mutations that could have been targeted at that time or get patients into clinical trials. So after returning to Switzerland, I went to work directly for Foundation Medicine as their global medical director. After a short break, discover how COVID-19 and turning 50 encouraged James to ask tough questions. Welcome back to Care Captains. And then COVID hit. So I spent most of COVID on Zoom calls from my home here in Basel. I would start in the morning at around eight o'clock with calls from China and end up going for most of the day into the evening to finish up with calls with my colleagues in the US. And after about a year and a half of doing that, I was quite burnt out of, of Zoom calls, as I'm sure everyone had a similar experience. And I was reminded of, uh, of the opportunity to sort of take perspective on what I wanted to be doing with the rest of my life. So I turned 50 and it was time to think about, you know, what do I want to do for the next, let's say, 20 years of of work life that I have ahead of me. And it rekindled in me an interest in starting my own business, which I had had since I was a kid, actually. As I was growing up in New Jersey, my parents started their own business. And much of my time in high school and even some university time, I ended up working with them uh, on the weekends and over holidays. And I really took away a sense of pride and accomplishment that comes from building your own business. And the freedom that comes with that to choose the work that you do and the impact that you can have on the rest of the world. So that had always been within me. And I was inspired also by my wife who left industry in 2013 to start her own executive coaching business, which has been very successful over the last decade. She was a big inspiration to me. So I took the decision to make a plan to make my exit from the corporate world. And in 2022, I left Roche to start consulting. And during that time, also formulated my plans for launching another company. So my first startup experience. Thank you, James. This is really a very, very exciting career trajectory. So many questions I have in my mind. Maybe the first one where I would like to go a little bit into the details that you came from clinical practice, you joined the industry, first pharmaceuticals in the US, then coming over to Europe, and then you moved over to diagnostics. How do you see the differences between pharmaceuticals and between diagnostics? Thanks for asking. Having switched back and forth a couple of times, I think there, there are a couple of key differences uh, in the cultures and the, the focus of the two businesses. Pharma is, uh, of course, a very a very complex and highly regulated industry. And 
as a manufacturer of essentially specialty chemicals that are going to be taken in by humans, quite a lot of quality and control and compliance involved, and a lot of professionalism at every stage and pretty much every role that you see in the pharma industry. Uh, What this means is those roles are very competitive and often come with an expectation for a lot of training. Um, And the culture is always a mindset of the benefit that you're going to deliver to the patient. So if you're going to deliver a pharmaceutical product that is going to have to go through years, safety and efficacy, testing, and then clinical trials, it's a big commitment on the part of the company. And it's a big commitment ultimately to that end patient who is going to be able to use your drug to to treat their disease. And on the diagnostic side, of course, also heavily regulated, at least in some sectors, and people are equally highly trained and specialized, but more from an engineering perspective. So the customer of the diagnostics industry is typically the laboratory. At least the largest part of the industry serves the clinical laboratories around the world who take in specimens from patients either in hospitals or out in community practice and run tests on those specimens to deliver results for cardiovascular markers or liver function tests for the most simple levels, uh, as well as glucose testing, all the way up to the comprehensive genomic profiling for cancer specimens, for example. And the, the mindset then in the diagnostics industry is typically focused as should be on their customer, which is typically the laboratory. So often they're delivering solutions that can be highly precise and highly reproducible and focusing on the laboratory's workflow. Thank you, James. And in your comparison, you already mentioned comprehensive genomic profiling, which looks a very fancy buzzword. Can you enlighten us with very simple layman terms? What does comprehensive genomic profiling do? Sure. Comprehensive genomic profiling is general term for what we now call broad panel multiplex or next generation sequencing for cancer. And this essentially is a process by which we are able to sequence the entire length of all of the genes that are known to be involved in cancer. And uh, an amazing development in, in terms of technology, if you see what Illumina and Thermo Fisher have been able to do with laboratory specimens that are in some cases years old, paraffin embedded tissue specimens, to be able to extract the DNA from this tissue and sequence millions of base pairs in a very reliable and reproducible way to identify what's going on in that cancer, what's driving that cancer in many cases, and then be able to deliver that information tie it to clinical trials and other literature-based results to be able to predict what's going on in that cancer and what drugs that cancer may respond to. The next advance in that technology, which is to be able to do the same thing from blood specimens, the ability to draw two tubes of blood from a patient and identify enough circulating tumor DNA that's shed from the tumor and is floating around in the blood to be able to identify mutations that are existing in the tumors, wherever they are in the patient's body, and again, be able to identify what's going on in that tumor and predict what medicines are going to be able to work for that tumor is really, it's practically science fiction coming true today. That, of course, that advance in technology brings challenges for the practicing clinicians. Um, 
many of whom, unless they've graduated and finished their oncology residency in the last decade or so, many of those practicing oncologists are not really familiar with this technology. It can be quite complicated because these lab reports oftentimes are many pages long and they include alterations in the cancer DNA that can be clinically relevant, but also things that are changes, but not necessarily clinically relevant today, what we call variants of unknown significance. That can be important to know also in the future for the patients. So they may not be tied to a particular drug response today, but in two or three years, the results of a clinical trial may come out and may actually be useful for that patient. So for practicing community oncologists, it is oftentimes very difficult for them to to sort through this huge amount of information that they can get from these reports, which can be 10, 20, 30 pages long, and really apply them for their patients. So a lot of the cancer centers now are adopting what are called molecular tumor boards. Our team would perform cancer genomics and bioinformatics review on each of the cases, and then set up a time to call back that center and walk through the cases with them and literally take the oncologist by the hand and walk them through what the results mean, which of the results were clinically meaningful, which were not clinically meaningful. So helping the oncologist to really make the best use of this information that they have. And this was the idea actually for the startup company that we recently, that I recently co-founded with another ex-Rush colleague to try to bring this service to more community oncologists around the world. While we were working for Foundation Medicine, we were frequently asked to interpret reports from other providers, either other big companies or from local hospital laboratories. And of course, as as Foundation Medicine employees, we, we had to unfortunately say no. But this kind of cancer genomics expertise is is really rather scarce in the world. And it's very difficult for companies and research consortia who are running large multicenter adaptive trials to get the kind of expertise that they need to sort through these results. Thank you, James. This is really a good segue into your new venture, what you already alluded to. Can you tell me more about the business model? Sure. The company is CGC Genomic Consults, AGE. It's a full AGE fund here in, in Switzerland. And you can find us at cancergenomicsconsults.com. The the idea, as I mentioned before, is really to bring this relatively scarce cancer genomics expertise that exists in a couple of places around the world to anywhere else in the world that it's needed. And it's purely a consultation service. So we don't do testing. We take the testing results that an oncologist or a patient or a research group or a laboratory has And we bring it to our cancer genomics experts to parse through those results and essentially deliver something like a half-page series of notes as to what is most relevant for this case, for this oncologist in this patient. Whereas a full comprehensive genomic profiling report, maybe 10 or 20 or 30 pages long, we consolidate all of that information down for the for the oncologist or for the researcher to understand what is really clinically relevant at the moment. We find a lot of oncologists don't necessarily need another report. What they need is somebody to be able to help them understand the results that they have, and that's exactly what our team helps them to do. So we can provide in as little as 24 hours a a consolidated overview of the relevant information in that report. 
and especially to talking points for the oncologist who is often asking for this kind of support to explain the results to their patient. A lot more patients are getting more involved in their care. They're asking to see the results of their laboratory reports, and they may have seen the results of their comprehensive genomic profiling, which often can include associations with a number of drugs. Many times those drugs are options, but either are not available in the country where the patient lives, or there are other signals within the cancer genomics report that imply that those particular drugs are not likely to work for this patient. <clears throat> and a lot of oncologists are looking for support in helping to put together the talking points to explain that. And if I understood correctly, you also support potentially research groups. And I think you were also involved in clinical trials. Can you talk more about that? How do you support clinical trials with your service? This is actually one of the real challenges for research groups that are trying to implement comprehensive genomic profiling into their clinical trial efforts. As cancer subgroups get more and more molecularly defined, so the, the subgroups become clearer, but they also become much smaller, these cancer subgroups are actually turning into rare diseases. Cancer today is actually a large collection of rare diseases. And in order to run trials effectively for rare diseases, you typically have to run them as larger multi-center adaptive trials. So opening and closing arms as you're able to recruit enough patients. And comprehensive genomic profiling is a great way to test with a standardized method a large number of patients and then identify those that have certain mutations and then assign, assign them to different treatment arms. And that's the method that's been used for a couple of different trials, TAPER, NCI Match, for example, as well as the large clinical trial that Roche recently reported on called Capisco in Cancer of Unknown Primary it was just reported at ESMO. That trial used the outputs of our molecular tumor board program. So the cancer genomicists, as part of foundation medicine, provided a review of every one of those does cancer genomics results for that clinical trial back to the molecular tumor board. So each of the patients reports came through. Our cancer genomicists did a quick review of them in a bioinformatics search to provide, again, a very consolidated view of the relevant results for that particular clinical trial to help the molecular tumor board decide what treatment arms to assign those patients to. And was very helpful, we hear, also helped to speed up that process. And this is exactly the challenge that a lot of large cancer centers and large research consortia have. They have access to experts. Um, there are great cancer genomics experts and molecular pathologists available, but oftentimes they are not available on a couple days turnaround time notice. So when a patient comes in, you often have relatively little time to get them started on therapy, to assign them to a treatment arm and, and get them started in the trial. Sometimes the turnaround time for those reviews using an existing university network of experts, for example, can be several weeks long, which is far too long. And so we heard back from the, the molecular tumor board at the Capisco trial was we helped them to keep their patients 
moving through the trial and getting assigned to treatment arms much faster. And this is a service now that we're offering also to other research consortia. Very valuable contribution. I understand it better how CGP can help these big trials. And you also work on a newsletter, I think, for medical affairs specialists. Can you tell us more about this newsletter? Why did you started it and what you would like to achieve with it? That has been a, a project that I've been working on for some time. I'm a I'm an obsessive note taker. So I have this huge collection of notes. I think it's something like 40 or 50,000 words at this point. And it's always bugged me that they're, you know, they're useful to me, but they're probably would be useful to other people. And I always wished that there was a book that could have helped me think through my career planning and my transition from medical practice into industry way back when I started. So the idea behind this was was also stimulated by a recent poll in the US that showed something like 20% of physicians are considering leaving clinical practice in the next year or two. I think a lot of this was stimulated by COVID, but but not just COVID. As I mentioned, many of my medical school classmates even decades ago were thinking about doing something else with their career, but were were kind of trapped because of their their debt situation. So I was inspired to think about whether or not Some of my notes would be helpful to other people who are considering changing careers as physicians or scientists considering coming to industry or for people who are new in their career to, you know, think about what options are available to them. Started the newsletter first to collect my thoughts and my learnings as I was transitioning from from corporate medical affairs into my own consulting work. Focuses on leadership in medical affairs in particular, but broadly for medical functions and broadly for for industry, career development in general. And I have now committed to writing a lot of this up as a book. I have a developmental editor, so I'm working on trying to get a chapter out at least every month on top of all the other work that I'm doing. And it's uh, it's really motivating because I finally feel like all of this all of this knowledge that I've gathered, all of the notes that I've taken over the years can finally be useful for somebody else. So my goal is to finish that by the end of 2024 and have it published. You can find that newsletter at eatingmedicalaffairs.com or again, searching on LinkedIn. James, I love the fact that you already committed to launching a book in 2024. So I just put the reminder in my calendar to invite you back and talk about the book. But before we run so much ahead, I would like to come back a little bit to the entrepreneurial move that you have made and especially building on that you like journaling, that you like note-taking. So looking back, how was the journey leading the industry behind and now being your own boss, started your own company in the last two years? You are hopefully experiencing more freedom. How is the journey so far? It has been exactly as inspiring and motivating and terrifying as you described in your own book, Norbert. <laughs> Should Kudos to you for writing Leaving the Golden Cage. It was a fantastic resource for me. I bought several copies also to, to give away to my fellow other entrepreneur friends who are thinking about making the same kind of change. It's it, It's Again, difficult to put into a lot of words because it's a roller coaster, of course. It's it's a lot of work to put together a plan to embrace the kind of challenge and uncertainty in yourself, to ask yourself the hard questions if this is something you really want to do, if you have a 
if you have the the tolerance for risk and uncertainty to be able to do this, if your family is willing to support you in doing this, of course, that's that's a big part of it. But that said, you know, once you've put all of those pieces in place, taking the leap is is tremendously empowering. It's given me a lot of flexibility, first of all. So freedom to choose the work that you want to work on. I particularly am motivated by mission-driven projects. So projects in rare disease, for example, and uh, you know the freedom to also turn down work that comes along if it's not stuff that motivates you can be really, really empowering. And that's not always the position that you're in. If you're working in a big company, you kind of take the work that comes along. So that part's been fantastic. Um, the next great leap, of course, is starting your own company in particularly here in Switzerland. There's a lot of personal liability that comes with starting a company. That's also been a fantastic education. There are great courses on how to become a board member and how to think about entrepreneurship. Um, we've used process called the Lean Entrepreneur to great ex- to great success in thinking through well in advance how we were going to set up the business and what pieces we would need to be able to deliver on that effectively. Writing a quality system, for example, and being audit prepared for the time when we're going to be starting to work with other biopharma companies or larger research consortia. For me, at least, there's this pride in ownership and the fundamental difference of working on your own dream versus working on someone else's dream. It's hard to imagine ever going back. It's it's still early times for us as a startup, but uh, it's a fantastic motivator to get me out of bed every morning. I'm glad that you didn't change your mind. And then you mentioned this pride of ownership, mission-driven projects. And sometimes, of course, it's a, it's a roller coaster, but I think all belongs together. And then you already a little bit alluded to the, the different organizational models of companies in Switzerland, maybe in the US. Let's go back a little bit to the experience what you had in China. Yeah, thanks. It's been a great learning opportunity for me. I mentioned the the intervention that my colleagues had to had to uh, had to run when I came here to Switzerland to to get me to focus a little bit more on connecting with other people rather than just working on delivering the work. And I think this is maybe the most important part as you move into more leadership roles. Your connection with other people is really your key opportunity to influence and to set a good example and to help to other help other people to grow and develop. So I'm very grateful that they helped me to recognize this. I think the U.S. stereotypically is a very work-driven culture. People, people's jobs, the work that they do, their titles, their salaries become a lot of people's identities. And that's, I think, very different here in Europe. A lot of Europeans work to enable the rest of their lives. So they come to work to work hard and get their work done and then look forward to having other things in their life that give them meaning. And so when you meet other Europeans, typically the question of what do you do falls down lower in the list of questions you would ask. People talk about what they're interested in, what their hobbies are, what they're doing with their families, travel, things like this. China is another world altogether. It's a very very driven work culture, of course. Folks there are are very well educated and very motivated, very ambitious, and like to work hard. Um, but it's also a much more collectivist mindset. So people are always thinking about their families, and they often are working hard, not so much for their own 
self-development in their own ego, their own title, their own salaries. They're working as part of their overall family unit to be the breadwinner, for example. They're supporting their children and their parents, maybe grandparents also. And that comes across in terms of, you know, how people focus on their work, the hours that they're willing to put in. And I took some of what I learned here in Europe about taking some time to better connect with people, either meeting them for coffee, for example, or taking those longer lunches, including a walk, to have an opportunity for colleagues to get to know each other a little bit better, for me to learn about them, what motivates them, what challenges they're facing, and to try to coach them through their problem solving rather than just telling them what I would recommend that they do. This for me was the the biggest advance that I made in my own leadership to move from sort of making recommendations or you know suggestions as to what people should do to rather more of a coaching approach to helping them think through their problems and come up with solutions on their own. Which and in China this can be particularly a challenge because the um, the boss is typically not questioned. And of course, I'm overgeneralizing here, but for the sake of of the discussion. People are typically trained never to outthink their boss. The boss gets a lot of respect. There's a lot of power distance. And so you have to actively cultivate a culture in which you sort of delegate to employees the power to make decisions, to make a strategy, to make recommendations as to what they should do next, rather than just wait to be told what to do. And... For me, that was, again, the perfect opportunity to put into practice some of the skills that I had learned working here in Europe. That would be the recommendation that I would make for anyone who is thinking about going to work in in the Far East to have a, an appreciation of the different cultural framework, the different water that people swim in that they're not maybe always aware of, and to think about how that will impact their relationship with work and their decision-making at work and try to find the best ways to help them to be more effective and to learn and develop. Now you have been in the industry in your career, I think 20, 25 plus years, if I count correctly. You started in the clinical practice, pharma diagnostics, you moved in between different continents. You started your own advisory business, uh, your own company. What recommendations, what tips you would give to the next generation, James? I would start by encouraging anyone, as I do with my own coaches, to spend a little bit of time really thinking about your strengths. There's lots of great tools for this. Strengths Finder is, is a popular one that I like to use. And to understand themselves better what motivates them, what their long-term goals are with their career, what they really enjoy in particular, and what they want to make out of their life. These, these goals, particularly the mid-longer-term goals, may change as you grow and develop. But you can always, knowing what those are means you can always weigh any new career option or work option that's in front of you against those longer-term goals. You can move through your career picking up different skills, working in different jobs, learning a lot. But if in the end, you only take those new skills as tools on your tool belt without a longer term goal, you're going to end up underutilizing them. And you may end up less satisfied with where you, where you want to be in your career. So 
it's totally fine to move around and do different things. Just make sure that all of those choices fit into a longer term strategy that you're happy with. So if you have the ambition to be CEO someday or start your own company someday or work for a nonprofit, anything is possible. You are in charge of your own life. Spend some time thinking about what you want that life to look like, what's going to be satisfying for you to look back on 20 years, 30 years down the line, and make sure that all the decisions that you make for your career are in line with that. I think that's the most important thing, particularly to folks who are younger in their career. And then I would advise them really to to focus on service. It's what brings the most meaning to people everywhere. For me, the greatest satisfaction I got out of my leadership career was watching people learn and grow in their own careers and ultimately be in a position to you know, pass on their learning and their experience to the next generation after them. If you, if you always stay focused on how you're delivering your service, then you will, you will always be doing well for yourself and you have the greatest chance of, again, finding work that, that will bring you meaning. When you're an employee, you should be thinking about, you know, how to provide the best service to your boss. When you have employees yourself, you should be thinking about how you can serve them, again, in a way that helps them to to do a better job in their role, but also how they can learn and grow and develop in their own career. If you're in a position of influence, I think you have an obligation to try to make the world better. And if you live that commitment to serve others, you really can't fail in your life. Thank you, James. One is definitely discovering your strength. The second was choose your options based on your long-term vision and then serve other people. I think this is really, really nice closing to the end. Thank you for sharing these insights with our audience. It was a pleasure having you on Kia Captains. Thank you, James. Thanks, Norbert. It was my pleasure. I hope you have enjoyed another episode of Care Captains. See you next week.